This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, it's Elizabeth here. We are busy at work on the next season of Days Like These and it is almost finished. It will be launching in just a few weeks in early February. And in the meantime, we wanted to share a bonus episode with you. These are some of our favourite audio stories from across the ABC. And today, reporter Mike Williams is telling us the story of an icon of Sydney's inner west, Marrickville's Henson Park. How do we start this? Uh, what do you say at the start of the... This is like, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boy, uh, hang on. Do it in your voice. Yeah, um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the eighth wonder of the world. I give you the one, the only, Henson Park, the jewel in the crown of rugby league football grounds. And welcome to the Marrickville Astrodome. Beautiful. <laughs> Hello, I'm Kirsty Melville and welcome to the History Listen. Throughout the stress and brain fog of lockdown, many Australians have renewed their relationship with their local park. When there was nowhere else to go, there was always the park. A woman doing some some weird fitness exercise I've never seen before. She's on her back like a turtle. First thing you realise is how massive it is. Just near them, there's a dad and his son kicking a football. It's an NRL ball. Like a lot of community land, these spaces have stories to tell. And so today on The History Listen, we're digging into one park with a particularly rich history. And right beside them, there's uh, four blokes kicking an AFL football. The great wall that's built all the way around it. Nestled amongst the crowded residential area of Marrickville in Sydney's inner west, lies a giant oval known as Henson Park. Anyone who's a massive Jet supporter would dream about owning a house that backs up to Henson Park. And then up on the hill I can see some dogs, some of them walking, some of them trotting, others just sitting and enjoying the afternoon sun. From its early days as a brick pit to the children that died there and inspired the council to dream big, Henson Park has many surprises, except for the crowd figure at a Jets game, which is always mysteriously 8,972. You can sort of see how old it is when you come in. So I've been in heaven. Goosebumps when I still walk in. I've been coming here like since 1971. and <laughs> place where people come. A magic place. To get some space. I still really enjoy the place coming in. It's just clear their head. A good feeling when you walk in here anyway. The ABC's Mike Williams brings you Henson Park. The Eighth Wonder. My name is Alan Madden, Gadigal Elder. Born and bred in Redfern. Married man, 10 children, 26 grandchildren, and 14 great great grandchildren. My life has been up and down, in and around, as with all Aboriginal people. First and foremost, I'd like to acknowledge our Aboriginal Elders, all Elders, past and present, and pay my respects to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters. From whatever Aboriginal or island nation you may have come from, welcome to Gadigal. And to all our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters, a very warm and sincere welcome to you to Gadigal. No matter where you've come from, whether it be across the seas, across the state or across town, once again, a very warm and sincere welcome to you to Gadigal. 
and as I've mentioned many times before, was, is, and always will be Aboriginal land. Only three things sure than that, coming, taxation and going. Where we are today is Gadigal. Gadigal is one of 29 clans of the Eora Nation. The Eora Nation is bounded by nature's own. The Hawkesbury River to the north, Nepean to the west and George's River to the south. And in between those three mighty rivers is the Eora Nation. And as you travel across these traditional lands and waters, may the spirits of our ancestors guide, look over you and keep you safe. So once again, on behalf of the Land Council and of the Gadigal mob, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Uncle Alan. Thank you for welcoming Radio National listeners here to Henson Park as we look at the history. Thank you. It's always an honour and pleasure to welcome one and all the country. And it's important for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to have a little bit of an inkling of, well, you know, there was someone here before you fellas. You know, they can drop bombs on these places. Two things will survive. Cockroaches and Aboriginals because that's what our DNA is, to survive. These lands around us would have been highways for Aboriginal people. These would have been meeting places. Most of Marrickville and around this way through to Dulwich Hill and that were a lot of swamps because it was floodplain area. And it's not very nice to be sleeping in the wet. These would have been places for recreation in the summertime with your water sources and your, and your ponds and, and your streams and that around here. Uncle Alan says Henson Park is still a significant gathering space for Indigenous Australians. The statewide Koori Knockout footy event has been held here several times. It wouldn't have been unheard of. They have five or 6,000 blackfellas here. Mate, that's a lot of blackfellas in one bloody area, I tell you. Okay, my name's Chris Meader. I am a qualified librarian and historian. And at the oh, there's, that, there's that blower back again. We could have seen this coming, Chris, with the, having a blower whip a snipper at a park. Why? They're coming this way now. There's more. He's got friends now. Oh, no. And uh, there's another plane. Chris Meader is a semi-retired librarian and historian. Her connection to Marrickville and Henson Park specifically runs deep. Henson Park has run in the family blood. Her grandfather carted bricks from here. Her dad was the last groundskeeper. The gate on the western side is named after him, the Charlie Meader Memorial Entrance. My father had five children and the job came with a house. But when we moved here, Henson Park became our playground. The ultimate backyard. It was the ultimate backyard. The story of Henson Park post-colonisation is built on bricks. It was discovered that Marrickville 
had the means of satisfying the building boom. A lot of areas in the inner west sit on a huge bed of clay and clay is what is needed for brickmaking. They also need a good supply of water. So in the late 1800s, a guy called Thomas Daly saw the land and he saw an opportunity to cash in. Daly was a very entrepreneurial, probably but quite wealthy brickmaker, and he decided this was the land for him, and he bought what is now Henson Park. So what do we know about Thomas? Uh, he did a lot of good work in the community, and he lived where Maryville High School now stands. And why bricks? We had to build in the 1880s, 1890s. Bricks were needed all over Sydney. If you look around here where we're sitting, many of the houses that we can see in these side streets were built from bricks from Stanshaw brick pits, as were the gates of Henson Park. After expanding wider and deeper, Daly's run at the brick pit comes to an end for good in 1926. Basically, the clay was exhausted. Also, brick making had become much more expensive to do. The water was creeping in all over the place and the settlement that he'd come here in the late 19th century was becoming very, very built up. When Daly finished, all that was left was a giant hole. 14 acres was Henson Park and probably took up 10 acres of it. How deep were the holes? It's reputed in the middle to be between 80 and 100 feet deep. 100 feet? Here's the thing with giant holes. When it rains, it's not a giant hole anymore, is it? It's a water hole. And on those sweltering Marrickville days, the water hole was a siren. Come, cool your burning heels, it whispered. OK, this is the remnant bank that went down into what was known as the blue hole. So what happened with one of the boys who lived in one of these houses, came out of his back gate, came down the bank, right down the bank, saw a duck's egg, Nicholas Tremlett reached for it, drowned. Nicholas is one of nine kids that we know of who died in the waterhole. It was a tragedy, all these kids. Trevor was only four, the oldest one that drowned here was 16. And there were two sets of brothers that died. One went in and the other went in to try and save him and they both drowned. People thinking, my goodness, there was a petition for residents about how many kids are going to drown before we do something. And the water was seen as the great danger. There were no public pools in those days. In fact, there weren't a lot of playgrounds for kids to play on. So the council bought the land from Daly and did the responsible thing and made it an official outdoor swimming pool. They even put a dressing shed up. (laughs) A cunning way to solve the problem. But unfortunately, the New South Wales Department of Health said the water was so polluted, so stagnant, that it had to be drained. Even though it wasn't drained yet, they renamed it Henson Park after the mayor, Thomas Henson. By now it was 1928 and they were desperate to stop names like Daly's Death Pit from catching on. Edmund Stanley Rowe became the chief engineer. He took it all over. He actually got a boat and he got Thomas Daly and his son to row around the brick pit to show where it was the deepest. That's like something out of a picture book. It is. He was an engineer by trade. Edward Stanley Rowe was a genius. He was crafty like how he designed the dressing sheds with a slanted roof so that one day, when council had the money, they could put a grandstand on top of it. But before all that, Roe would have to figure out how to drain the lake. 
it'd take years. They put huge pipes underneath Sydney Road and drain the water into the channels. They also use carts with pumps. The job was almost done by 1930, but the hole was so deep they had trouble getting the dregs out. But then they had another problem though, which was what to do with a giant wet hole. They actually advertised people to come and dump things here. And they told other councils, bring us your rubbish and we can dump it in Henson Park. The smell, the smell must have been overpowering. And you can imagine, you get behind a garbage truck on a hot day and they've got that, you can smell that. The people that lived down along Sydney Road, the stench was so much. There was petition after petition to council. It made them sick, they had to keep their windows shut. But I felt sorry for a lot of the people that had to work on the brick pits. They were up to their knees in rubbish, they were up to their knees in mud. It was the 1930s and council had access to unemployed labour programs and government grants. So they were lucky they were able to employ. And I look at this, this is a depression work program that still exists and is still a testament to all those men that worked, and boys, that worked on Henson Park, filling it in. The council went into a huge amount of debt, but it didn't stifle their ambition. No, they wanted to create a suburban rival to the Sydney cricket ground. They just didn't look at filling in a big hole and making a park. They could have just thought that, but they had this vision of a... They actually talked about in the future. The future will be very happy about what we're doing. When Henson Park did open, there was an uh, article in what was the referee, and they said, it's so strange, so uncivilised. We hope it stays this way. But no-one knew it was here. You know, if you drove up Sydney Road, where was it? It is hidden, isn't it? Yeah. It was a hidden gem. I think it actually said it's a little bit of the outback brought to suburban Marrickville. The official opening of Henson Park was in 1936 to line up with Marrickville Council's 75th anniversary. But in 1932, they were ready to go, so they had an informal opening, a cricket match. Wait, no. With a Marrickville 11 against North Sydney and North Sydney was captained by the great Sir Don Bradman. Of course, Marrickville lost. And this was going to be a precursor. Marrickville Cricket Club was very well known, very successful, and their home was down the road at Livingston Oval. And council said, oh, well, we're open now. You can come up and move to Henson Park. And they'd been down there for like 20 years and it was lovely. And they took one look around at Henson Park and thought, we respectfully decline. Well, that's a big blow for the SCG of the West sort of idea. a huge blow. Ah, who cares about cricket anyway? Before that informal launch with Bradman, there was an even more informal sporting match. Vigoro. What is Vigoro? Vigoro. It's similar to baseball, mainly played by women. And uh, it was a team from Dulwich Hill made up of Pacific Islander women. They were called the Wahinis. Like Marrickville itself... The sports played on Henson Park were destined to be diverse and inclusive. They had baseball here, they had running, the bike track went in. But in the end, they thought, well, Newtown's looking for a home. And they started negotiations with the league to bring Newtown here. And in 1936, Newtown Rugby League did come. Newtown is coming, And apart from about a, uh, an eight-year stint in the late 40s, early 50s, they've been here pretty much ever since. Would the Jets ever want to play somewhere else? No, no, no. Why would you? Man all in blue. Look at 
Terry Williams is the historian for the Newtown Jets Rugby League Club. He's even written a couple of books about him. I've been coming here since um, as long as I can remember, actually. I was born about 400 metres up the road. He paints a pretty picture for why Henson Park is special on game day. When you go to an NRL game, it's that whole corporatised experience these days. You sit in a plastic chair, you have a pie that's wrapped in plastic, watered down beer out of a plastic cup, and the whole experience has been so sanitised. And this level of football is completely different to that because you come here, you can buy a sausage sandwich with onion, have the sauce dripping down over your fingers, you can buy a can of beer, and at half-time you see it. There's kids out on the able kicking the ball every which way and everyone's out there enjoying themselves and professional athletes all work around that. They don't bat an eyelid at all whilst they do in their warm-up. And then the kids clear, the players run on, they play their 40 minutes and then they come off, the kids all go back on again and there'll be dogs running wild and there's people having fun left, right and centre and it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, where you come from, what you do. If you're wearing royal blue, you're part of the army and you're accepted. The bike has a big wheel at the front and a little wheel at the back and it has jet stickers and a horn. I've come to interview a bloke called John Trad, but Traddy's famous around here and a young Jets fan named Jackson has stormed the interview. Does Traddy ever let, uh, let anyone else do the horn or is that something special that only he can do? Only he can do. Really? I reckon he can make an exception yeah. for the interview, though, don't you think? Yes, he can. He can do that. Yeah, OK, sure right, we'll go on. Then. John Trad is just one of the characters that make the Jets and the Henson Park community unique. He's ridden a penny-farthing bicycle around Henson Park over 2,000 times. Where did this bike come from? What's the story? My brother bought it in about 1995 in a garage sale. I was supposed to help him clean out his garage and I found that halfway through and I just got on it. I couldn't believe it and uh, I found myself on the driveway, then I found myself on the footpath. That was back in the day with no mobiles, right? So my brother Wade just kept ringing home and home and then finally he catches me home and goes, where are you? I was going, I'm at home. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I couldn't help myself. I just couldn't stop. He said, when are you going to come and help me? I said, I come tomorrow and I helped him the next day. And he said, I can keep the bike. <laughs> I don't think you wouldn't have given it back anyway. So. No way. No, no. I just fell in love with it straight away. Trudy didn't mind the Jets when he was a kid, but his love for them grew when he met Paul Hogan at a home game. As an adult, Trudy used to film games for the club. And then um, my camera broke. I didn't have anything to do, so I thought, oh, what can I do? I, you know, I'm so used to filming the games. And so I took my bike... And uh, we had um, scored a try to win the game. It was so exciting. And I got on my bike and I rode around. It was a hit. People were cheering and high-fiving. Kids were chasing. And I thought to myself, wow, that was a lot of fun. So the next week, we had another home game. And my camera wasn't ready, so I brought the bike. And after that, every time the Jets would score a try, I'd do a lap. A few weeks after that, uh, I got a phone call saying my camera was ready to pick up. And I said, don't worry about it, mate. I'm not filming anymore. <laughs> I'm going to be doing this from now on. I'm 56 now, and I'm, I don't think I'll stop riding till I'm, you know, till I die. <laughs> well, they may never score another try again if you do. Oh, my God. <laughs> Henson Park's in the federal electorate of Grainler. That's opposition leader Anthony Albanese's seat. I had an interview lined up with him, but he cancelled at the last minute. There was a surprise announcement about a new alliance between Australia, the US and the UK. 
But a few hours later, on the same day, he rang back. Sorry to dick you around today. It's been a few things, you know. Yes. Nuclear subs and... <laughs> it's a busy one for you. He was keen to talk about his local park. We need focal points, and that can be people, but it can also be structures. It's an institution. You know, it's okay to talk to a stranger on the hill. I once saw Anthony Albanese compete in a charity Aussie Rules match at Henson Park. Nobody seemed to mind. He was just another bloke in a jumper. The park's special like that. It's an equaliser. When I'm there at a new down game, you know, you go along and just say good day to people. And, you know, you don't have big political discussion. You talk about the footy. The great thing about Australia is that you can do all of that. I played one of my first games. I think I played there. I might have been deputy prime minister. You know, that was fine. You know, it was just... What, uh, no one tried, wanted to take a hit on the deputy PM? No, no. I must say, one of the games I played there, there was one young bloke marking me. Yeah, and he was doing this sort of bump tagging thing. And and I said to him, mate, there's no danger in me. Just chill out. <laughs> Just chill out. You know, this is not serious. Yeah. He was like, oh, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> what would ever happen if something were to happen to Henson Park, do you think? I think people would stand in front of bulldozers. I don't think it's possible to overstate the significance of Henson Park to Newtown Jets fans. Jets historian Terry Williams. In the many hats I've worn here at one stage, I was ground manager, and you get some people coming out, and um, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but... Go on. ...who'd say that, you know, like, grandfather has died, he was a lifelong Newtown fan, and who do we ask to get permission, you know, to sprinkle his ashes? You've got permission, as far as we're concerned, just go and do it on the quiet. No-one's going to complain, mate. Take a few photos out there with you, you know, like... (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yeah, well, again, but it shows the people's passion for it, and... Particularly in suburban grounds, I think they're often cathedrals, suburban cathedrals, and they are like churches in that regard because people have a real connection with it. So they just walk out and just yeah, sprinkle it? a small place, you know, like, and that might not be the whole thing, so it wasn't like emptying, a, you know, on a windy day, <laughs> you don't want half of Grandpa finishing up on the hill or on someone's pie, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Is it something you've thought about? Yeah, certainly, yeah, yeah. I've done my list. You've told the kids? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you got a special spot? Point to this where you want the ashes to go. Uh, somewhere convenient to the bar, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe just down here. <laughs> the... Today's official attendance here at Henson Park, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is 8,972. My name is John Lynch and I'm the ground announcer at Royal and Ancient Henson Park. One night there, freezing cold night at the old Redfern Oval. Copping a bit of a hiding from Guildford or somewhere, I can't remember now. Drizzly rain, penguins running around the place, it was that cold. And uh, I just said, I'll get to announce the crowd. Today's crowd is 8,972, where in fact there was about 104 people there. That was in 1995. The next week, back at Henson, he said it again, and he never stopped saying it. We've got T-shirts and stubby holders with 8972 on it, but it always gets a cheer at Henson. And when I do announce it, you hear that, you know, but you do get characters will say, mate, you should go to APSM, mate, you know. Can't you count your fail maths at school? I get all these comments, you know. So it's a bit of, bit of fun. Guitar. 
The history of the Jets since they first played here in 1936 is long and it's easy to get carried away in their colour and passion. But there's more to the story of Henson Park. In fact, around the time the Jets started playing here, Marrickville Council had their sights on taking the park international. Always visionary, always looking ahead. Marrickville Council decided, well, the Empire Games are coming up in 1938. We'll bid. In the third Empire Games in Sydney in 1938, amateur sport in this country had come of age. It'd be like today, looking at Henson Party, we're going to put in a bid for the Commonwealth Games. The brave are rewarded because they won. And they didn't even have a grandstand built yet. Up step and jump, Jack Metcalf, Australian champion. Yes, still the old jumping jack. They hosted some cycling events and the closing ceremony. And they didn't do it for cash. None of this big sponsorship in those days. I think it was more for, we did it, we've got it. And because we've got it, other people might want to come and do things here too, which they might have, except World War II intervened, didn't it? The Games justified the Council's effort and their debt, and it put Marrickville on the map. Those were the last Empire Games. After the war, it became, as we know it today, the Commonwealth Games. When the British organisers came out to inspect the park, the Newtown Jets hosted an exhibition match so they could see the ground in action. And a guy called Herb Narvo, that very day, had been selected to play in the Kangaroos. It was his birthday. Also on the velodrome, there was this, the famous Marrickville scooter races, kids. So Herb Narvo, so excited, he grabbed the winner, Jean Foster, who was 10. He grabbed her scooter. And at that point, all the kids jumped over the fences. The British organising committee thought, well, what's going to happen if this happens during the Empire Games? We can't have crowd invasions. It's fascinating that that tradition, it's such a long tradition. Well, it is a long tradition. Once one jumps, they all jump. But I think that was part of the whole experience. You didn't just come to watch a footy game. You were part of the football game. Yeah. Like everyone else in this story, Chris is a loyal Newtown Jets fan. You catch her at a home game, eating a sausage sandwich in front of the kiosk or maybe up on the hill. But returning to Henson Park means something extra to her. Remember, she grew up here. And at the end of the day, this is a space made special by the people who use it. What was it like for your dad being the caretaker here? The majority of time, I think he really loved it. He lost his wife, my mother, quite early on, so Newtown became like a community to him, and they were very good to us too. All the ladies in the street would turn up to help. They trudged over to Royal North Shore in teams. That's what I like about Murrayfall, that we are just like a great big village in many ways. A village, like a lot of places, that's relied on its park more than ever during lockdown. There's something about the tradition of getting to play and having your ancestors have had recreation time, time for themselves on this same space. Exactly, and that's what recreation means, isn't it? You're recreating yourself. Is that what it means? Recreation, recreation. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> I've thought of that quite a bit. A teacher told me that, and I never forgot it. Recreating yourself through mentally, physically. Well, that's right. So I think there are a lot of people that have discovered their local park who may never have used their local park, but being forced to use your local park has reset your relationship with your local area. How important is Henson Park to, to Marrickville today? 
there would be no Marrickville without Henson Park. In fact, really? What do you mean? Henson Park and Marrickville are kind of synonymous. You know, you've got to have something in your area that is different, and this is different. But people come here and everyone thinks it's their park. Everyone that walks through that gate and plays here, you know, it's my park. <laughs> they all bring a little bit of themselves here. That story was written and produced by Mike Williams for The History Listen. The sound engineer was Russell Stapleton. You can find more episodes of The History Listen on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Days Like These is just a few weeks away from sharing our new season with you and we can't wait. But for now, I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you soon.